Thank you. You may be seated. Our second scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 18. Uh, I'll be reading verses 15 through 20. Alicia read the first verse to the children uh, earlier this morning, beginning with verse 15. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This past Wednesday night, we studied a story from the Gospel of John about the woman who was caught in adultery. The religious leaders brought her to Jesus to see whether he would uphold the law that indicated the woman was to be stoned to death. Then Jesus delivered the famous line, Let the one without sin cast the first stone. That line is one that I would suspect many folks, both inside and outside the church, know quite well and are willing to quote in and out of context. Scripture is like that sometimes. That particular line has become a defense for all kinds of mischief. If one is approached by another and chastised for a behavior, the reply may be, well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Might want to remember that. You know, Scripture's like that. And so because it's very easy to take an oft-repeated verse, and quote it without thinking through the context in Scripture. In our reading today, we have another one of those verses. You've heard it before. You've probably quoted it before. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. How often have we stopped to actually ponder the enormity, the magnitude of that statement? Taken at face value, when we gather, we are on holy ground. When we come together, there is a sacredness, a holiness, a purity that should transcend anything else that's going on in our lives. For He is here with us when we gather in His name. When we gather, we're not just coming together to eat good food, which as Baptists, we certainly do. We're not just coming together to spend time with friends. We can do that elsewhere and in other settings. We are coming together in a sacred time together, holy and pure. But of course, we know it doesn't always feel that way. 
Sometimes it most certainly does not feel holy and sacred and pure when two or three are gathered in His name. Sometimes we don't feel that we are standing on holy ground at all. Nothing sacred about it. If you've been in the church long enough, you've seen it. Business meetings gone awry where angry church members explode when they don't get their way. Church gatherings where the bickering and sniping goes on behind the scenes when there are public smiles all around. Disagreements over matters such as how to do outreach, how to approach ministry, what color the carpet will be, building needs, grounds needs, which hymnal to use, whether to use hymnals, what kind of music to have, to clap or not in worship, to raise hands or not in worship, canned music or the piano only, the order of worship, do we have bulletins, the length of sermons, I got an amen on that, the number of verses we sing in the hymns, which translation of the Bible we use, how much do we give to missions? What percentage do we give? Which missions do we give to? Do we preach on giving or not? The pastor's salary, staff members, how many? What do they do? What to wear to church? What not to wear to church? The list is almost endless, and you can be assured that church members have left churches over every one of these issues and more. All while Jesus himself is in the midst of us. Something we tend to forget when focusing on issues that may divide us or make us angry. Now, even with all those issues I just listed and more, those don't even include the personal disposition of one who would choose to be among us. What about the person who actually intentionally wrongs you? Who, as we read in Scripture, sins against you? What about the unrepentant troublemaker? What about the one who knows he or she is wronging you but will not back down? Well, do I have good news for you? Jesus has an answer for that person. And we get his solution in three very straightforward steps from the first verses in our scripture today. Step one, go to the person point out the fault, and give the person a chance to take things back. If that fails, step two, take one or two with you as witnesses and try again. If that fails, step three, tell it to the church. Oh, yes, tell it to the church. And if all that fails, then goodbye. You are the weakest link. Thank you for playing. See you later. Do not let the door hit you on the way out. Wow! That was easy. But no, it's not. Nothing about any of those steps is easy. And the reason is that we are talking about relationships. 
Last week, Alicia spoke of the importance of community. And, even though she's not in here to hear this, she also noted that I had given her the difficult passages to teach and preach on. Well, Alicia, maybe this is payback because these verses are certainly no walk in the park, okay? And part of it is because of our perception. How do we perceive Christian community? There are two ways that we can look at these three steps that Jesus gives us. And it depends on our perception of Christian community. The first way to look at these verses is that they are telling us how to keep someone out. How to preserve some type of unity in our community of faith. Someone causing a problem? Well, let's do what Jesus says to remove the problem. I've said it before, one of the beauties of teaching in the college classroom is at the beginning of the semester you can say, you know what, if there's a problem in this classroom between you and me, one of us is going to leave, and it's not going to be me. I love being able to say that. And it's one thing to say that in the classroom, but it's very different to say that in the church. For in so doing, we certainly will maintain some sort of unity, but at what cost? We are preserving community by removing part of the community? You know, I would guess there are times when this type of church discipline has been implemented, and maybe it would be necessary. But before we go too far in this direction, in pursuit of maintaining our unity, I want to share with you what William Barclay has to say about these verses. He writes, In many ways, this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the whole of Matthew's Gospel. See, Alicia, I told you. Its difficulty lies in the undoubted fact that it does not ring true. It does not sound like Jesus. It sounds much more like the regulations of an ecclesiastical committee. We may go further. It is not possible that Jesus said this in its present form. Okay, now, this is Barclay. Okay, I'm quoting somebody else. That's pretty heavy. I realize this, but please hear him out. He writes, Jesus could not have told his disciples to take things to the church, for it did not exist. And the passage implies a fully developed and organized church with a system of ecclesiastical discipline. What is more, it speaks of tax collectors and Gentiles as irreclaimable outsiders. Yet Jesus was accused of being the friend of tax gatherers and sinners. And he never spoke of them as hopeless outsiders, but always with sympathy and love and even with praise. Further, the whole tone of the passage is that there is a limit to forgiveness. That there comes a time when a man may be abandoned as beyond hope, counsel which it is impossible to think of Jesus giving. And verse 18 actually seems to give the church the power to retain and to forgive sins. There are many reasons to make us think that this as it stands cannot be a correct report of the words of Jesus, but an adaptation made by the church in later days. 
when church discipline was rather a thing of rules and regulations than of love and forgiveness. Although this passage is certainly not a correct report of what Jesus said, it is equally certain that it goes back to something he did say. Can we press behind it and come to the actual commandment of Jesus? At its widest, what Jesus was saying was, if anyone sins against you, spare no effort to make that man admit his fault and to get things right again between you and him. And then Barclay speaks to the issue of tax collectors and sinners again. He writes, We have seen that when Jesus speaks of tax gatherers and sinners, he always does so with sympathy and gentleness and an appreciation of their good qualities. It may be that what Jesus said was something like this. When you have done all this, when you have given the sinner every chance and when he remains stubborn and obdurate, you may think that he is no better than a renegade tax collector or even a godless Gentile. Well, you may be right, but I have not found the tax gatherers and the Gentiles hopeless. My experience of them is that they too have a heart to be touched, and there are many of them, like Matthew and Zacchaeus, who have become my best friends. Even if the stubborn sinner is like a tax collector or a Gentile, you may still win him as I have done. And so even though one way of looking at these verses is that they are telling us how to keep someone out, it would seem that a more likely approach is they are telling us and urging us to do everything to keep someone out. In. If a community of believers truly is a sacred and holy and pure gathering with Jesus in our midst, we should want to make every effort to allow as many as possible to experience that sacredness even if it means persevering through all our infirmities to make that happen. Jesus emphasized the importance of this when he said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Back to Barclay, he writes, finally, there is a saying about loosing and binding. It is a difficult saying. It cannot mean that the church can remit or forgive sins and so settle a man's destiny in time or in eternity. What it may well mean is that the relationships we establish with our fellow men last not only through time but into eternity. Therefore, we must get them right. Because what we do with those relationships not only matters here, but it matters in the hereafter as well. When you came in this morning, you picked up an oyster shell. I got one too. As the oyster grows in size, 
its shell must also grow. I mean, that makes sense. It's kind of hard to believe when you see something like this that it can grow. Uh, but if it didn't, then we would only have little baby oysters, I guess. Uh, the mantle is an organ in the oyster that produces the oyster shell, this shiny part on the inside, using minerals from the oyster's food. The material created by the mantle is called nacre. N-A-C-R-E. Nacre lines the inside of the shell. The formation of a natural pearl begins when a foreign substance slips into the oyster between the mantle and the shell. Likely a single grain of sand. Just one grain of sand. Well, that grain of sand becomes an irritant becomes bothersome to the oyster. In church terms, we might even say it sins against the oyster. Making trouble for the oyster, if you will. The oyster's natural reaction is to cover up that irritant to protect itself. But the same material that it uses to make its shell. The mantle covers the irritant with layers of the same nacre substance that it uses to create the shell. This eventually forms a pearl. Well, you have an oyster shell, so you need a pearl to go with it. Ethan, would you help me? Would you go out and make sure you like this? Thank you. I'm not going to disclose whether these are real pearls that I'm giving out to everyone or whether they are man-made synthetic wannabes. So the oyster takes an irritant and it covers it with nacre. Layer after layer after layer. And it produces something that many consider to be a very precious commodity. Natural pearls a string of natural pearls is something that people will pay a great price for. We in the church might take a lesson from the oyster when irritants come our way. Certainly we can expel the irritant. Get out of here. Leave us alone. Or we can cover that person with layer upon layer upon layer of love and grace. That same substance that is used here to cover us, that same substance, if you will, that grows this place that we use to cover that person. And hopefully, when all is said and done, God's kingdom is strengthened both on earth and in heaven. Our community of faith is sacred space. Each member of this community is a precious commodity in the making. But it takes work. It takes hard work sometimes on our part to keep it this way. Layer upon layer upon layer of love and grace not only to those who sit among us now, 
but also to those who have yet to arrive. May we continue to provide those layers of love and grace to everyone who comes our way. As the choir sang a few minutes ago, in this very room, there's quite enough love for all of us. Why? Because the Lord Jesus himself is with us in this very room. Let's pray.